Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from Hungary, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell from Nazi Germany. Talking about Hungary, uh, there is word that Hungary, that is the government of Hungary, uh, the government of Viktor Orban, might block the um, entrance of new members of the NATO pact. Uh, specifically, people in Sweden and Finland are worried that Hungary might block their entrance to the alliance. Now, this is important right-wing news for several reasons. Uh, one is that Viktor Orban is probably the prominent representative of illiberal democracy. You know, that's a term that he coined himself and on the right wing in general in Europe. It's also evidence of Hungary's continued alliance with Russia, even in the midst of Russia's uh, aggression and war in Ukraine. Uh, Sweden and Finland have always been buffer states between Europe and Russia and have often remained neutral in those sort of big geopolitical affairs. And so if they're going to change that, uh, it seems like Russia does not want that. Moving on to Brazil, the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, continues to be espousing a lot of uh, golpista rhetoric. You know, he's talking about potentially staging a coup. He's not using quite so many words and is trying to get his supporters to be a little bit quieter about this kind of stuff. But he is clearly still operating in that same vein. Polls are not looking good for him. It is very clear that if this election goes off if it actually happens on the uh, 30th of October at the end of this month, then he will lose to Ignacio Lula de Silva. Moving on to news in the United States, Alex Jones, the leader of Infowars and several other pseudoscientific and pseudo-news organizations, has been ordered uh, to pay approximately $1 billion, that is over $900 million, to the families of the children who were murdered at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Uh, not just the families of the children, but also uh, teachers and staff members who were killed in that particular massacre. This trial, uh, which concluded this week, wasn't about whether or not he owed this money uh, because he didn't defend himself adequately. Uh, rather, the trial was only about how much money he owed. Uh, the verdict is against Jones and also the holding company that owns Infowars and all of the other sort of media empire stuff that Alex Jones has going on. Obviously, Alex Jones cannot pay this. Uh, by any and all estimates, he is worth somewhere between 100 and $200 million. And Infowars has, you know, millions of dollars itself. Uh, however, uh, this means that it's entirely possible that the people who brought this case against Alex Jones will be able to seize the assets of Jones and his companies. Uh, that means that they could be shut down for good, and also that they might be able to get access to documents and information that Alex Jones is trying to keep secret. This is extremely interesting because Alex Jones is an extremely integral part of the story of January 6th, and it means that the seizure of these documents could prove very telling for this story. Speaking of that story, today, uh, that is, Thursday, October the 13th, is expected to be the final day of the presentations of the January 6th Special Select Committee in the House of Representatives in the United States. Because I am recording this on Wednesday, I don't know exactly what this report is going to say. Uh, I'll be talking about it next week. This week also began in earnest the trial of a lot of members of the Oath Keepers. 
Now, the Oath Keepers are one of the biggest and most important fascist organizations in the United States. They are, at least supposedly, their claim is that they are keeping the oath, quote-unquote, of people who work in law enforcement or in the military to protect the United States and its democracy. In fact, they are fascists who have worked very closely with other fascist organizations and also with Donald Trump and his allies in order to attempt to overthrow democracy January 6th of 2021. Uh, A trial is currently ongoing for a lot of the leaders of this organization, including its main leader, Stuart Rhodes. And some of the testimony in this trial has been very telling about how the Oath Keepers were working. For example, we now know uh, that they kept a cache of weapons in our DC hotel room uh, during the attempted coup. And this means that they were prepared for more violence than we saw on January 6th itself. Potentially, they were prepared for violence after a successful coup, you know, or for some prolonged street fighting if they had incited massive or, you know, just like a greater amount of violence in the United States Capitol building. We also now know that various members of the Oath Keepers are trying to throw Stuart Rhodes under the bus. Uh, They're really trying to claim that like, you know, oh, well, he radicalized us and it's not our fault and blah, 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 blah. That's completely ridiculous. You know, these are people who were intentionally participating in a fascist organization. Probably the most incendiary information that we definitely know now is that they were, that is the leaders of the Oath Keepers, were in touch with members of the Secret Service before the coup, Uh, potentially as many as Uh, several months before the coup happened. Now, the Secret Service has confirmed that this contact happened, but their claim is that this is just sort of like a normal level of contact that they would have with any group that is planning a protest that is in or around the areas of the Capitol buildings. Um, Frankly, I don't believe it. Yeah, I just, I, I, I just frankly don't believe that. Um, I think that this is increasing evidence based on other things that we've seen so far about the ways that the Secret Service behaves specifically regarding Mike Pence and his security detail. I think that in the next couple months, we're going to get evidence of members of the Secret Service working directly with fascist organizations in an effort to overthrow the United States government. And um, that's terrifying. It's completely insane. It's awful. And it's also not something that we can be surprised by. Continuing on in uh, an episode that has turned out to be a lot about uh, legal cases in the United States regarding fascism, uh, a guy has gotten four years in prison over his plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, uh, Whitmer. Uh, The person who has gotten this prison sentence, his name is Caleb Franks. It was part of a 2020 plot Uh, and a network of other right-wing individuals in Michigan and also in other states around the Great Lakes area in order to, in their opinion, retaliate against the government for its undue COVID restriction policies. Specifically, the plan was to kidnap Governor Whitmer and potentially torture her live on television in order to show the consequences for trying to keep people safe during a deadly global pandemic. Mr. Franks was up for life, uh, but got it reduced to four years because he was testifying against his former allies in other federal cases. This is a good example of how these particular organizations, uh, in their attempts to overthrow the United States government, have not been doing so well uh, as other 
radical organizations have been in the past in terms of maintaining their internal party structure and their internal loyalty. They are really turning on each other a whole lot. And speaking of that, uh, we have another trial. Uh, this one is about Jeremy Bertino. Uh, he was a leading lieutenant to the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario, or the former leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario. He has pled guilty, uh, that is Bertino, has pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. Uh, this is a big deal because, as we've said in a, the last couple episodes, a lot of these people from the Proud Boys to the Oath Keepers are getting charged with this extremely serious crime, seditious conspiracy, a crime that is not very commonly charged in the United States. We really haven't seen a whole lot of it for the last, like, century? Uh, this is also particularly interesting because Bertino also is cooperating with the feds in their other investigations. Now, Bertino was not on the Capitol building grounds on January 6th. He was not present at the coup itself. Uh, he had actually been stabbed in a previous Washington, D.C. rally, and so was recovering and could not attend in person. Instead, his job was to post, uh, that is, communicate online uh, about um, people invading the Capitol uh, to help them get information in and out, to post guides and suggestions and routes and maps and stuff. He is not being kept in jail, and it is entirely possible that he's going to get a very light sentence, despite the fact that, you know, uh, he has pled guilty to trying to plan to overthrow the United States government with violence against elected members of Congress and also potentially the vice president, uh, because he might cooperate. He might be cooperating with the federal government in order to get other people in jail. Now, the reason that I have been going on and on about the ins and outs of these legal things is, one, they're important. Uh, Two, they are what the United States government is doing in order to try to combat right-wing extremism right now. And three, because it is entirely possible that one or more of these people is actually going to turn on somebody bigger, somebody more important, somebody more connected. It's entirely possible that one of these people is going to offer some sort of testimony that might result in a more serious criminal charge for somebody like Roger Stone, somebody like Steve Bannon, or even potentially somebody like Donald Trump. And if we see that kind of evidence appearing in the public, just like on the record, openly, before the 2024 presidential election cycle really gets started in earnest... I honestly don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, It might be the craziest political event that has ever happened in the United States. Then again, it's also entirely possible that the popular will to oppose right-wing extremism will really peter out uh, as these trials drone on and on and on, and most people get bored and stop paying attention. So uh, we'll have to see about that. I'm going to conclude this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Hermann Göring, uh, who is one of the most important Nazis after Adolf Hitler himself. Göring was born in Bavaria in 1893. He was born to a family of civil servants and military people. Uh, His father had served in the Boer Wars uh, and had also served in several other Uh, military and civil positions in the German state. Young Goering wanted to join the military as a child uh, and uh, played all around a lot with uh, soldiers and war games. He joined a military academy as a youth and did very well. 
by all accounts, Göring was extremely smart. He joined the German military, that is specifically the army, before World War I, and then when World War I started, he participated in trench warfare. Uh, while he was in the trenches, he got very ill and was sent back to recover, and it was there that he started to petition and finally eventually got to be a pilot in the nascent German Air Force, which at the time, like most air forces, was directly connected to the army as opposed to being a separate branch of the military. It turns out that Goering was an extremely good pilot, like an ace-ace pilot, and he eventually ends up leading the Flying Circus. Uh, that's the Flying Circus that Baron von Richthofen led until he died being shot down. Uh, so Goering was the, you know, the last leader of this extremely storied German uh, Air Force division. This meant that he was a war hero, but like many war heroes, he did not do particularly well between the wars, especially in Germany, where the Air Force was officially dismantled by the Treaty of Versailles. He was a commercial and stunt pilot between the wars, and then as a, you know, downwardly mobile, disgruntled white man, he joined the Nazi party extremely early in 1922. He was one of the early leaders of the SA, which was the early Nazi paramilitary organization. He participated in and was injured in the Beer Hall Putsch, the Nazis' first attempt to take power in Germany illegally. Specifically, he was shot in the groin, and this, uh, the recovery from this was the beginnings of a lifelong opioid addiction. Specifically, he was addicted to a form of diluted morphine. He continued to be a Nazi party ideologue and was a close ally, an extremely close personal ally of Adolf Hitler, who would eventually take over full 100% leadership, unquestioned leadership of the Nazi party. With Nazi electoral victory in Germany in 1932, he becomes the president of the Reichstag, a position he held until um, his death. And he also held various other top-level Nazi positions, including leading the Gestapo, the secret police, the secret political police of the Nazi party. He was also in charge of rearmament in general and was particularly in charge of all Air Force operations in Germany. He rode the wave of the massive successes of Germany during the early parts of World War II and also rode the wave of the massive military failures that Germany suffered after the beginning of its invasion of the Soviet Union. Goering escaped the Führer bunker on Hitler's birthday in 1945 seeing the writing on the wall like many other Nazis. He was then ousted from the party by Hitler uh, for allegedly planning to seek a separate peace uh, because Goering was, up until this time, Hitler's stated successor. Like, Hitler said, like, if I die, Hermann Goering will be the next leader of Germany. This was how close they were. Uh, but Goering was expelled from the party by Hitler in a fit of rage because he thought that Goering was betraying him, which it's entirely possible that he was. Goering then sought to surrender to the United States in order to avoid surrendering to the Soviets, and he did so successfully. He was captured by the United States and was taken eventually to be tried at the Nuremberg trials. He participated in the Nuremberg trials like everybody else. Uh, he pretended to be surprised by the images of the Holocaust, just like all the other Nazis there. And he was found guilty of all counts and sentenced to death by hanging, along with all of the other Nazis. However, Goering committed suicide by a cyanide capsule the night before the hanging was supposed to happen. A guard, a United States guard, later admitted that he had given Goering uh, a quote-unquote medicine, which a German woman had smuggled inside 
uh, on the interior of a fountain pen. You know, perhaps the guard thought that the man just wanted one last dose of morphine. Instead, Goering escaped the noose, and his body had to be displayed alongside the other Nazis who were hanged in order to show the world to prove to them that they were indeed dead. So, Hermann Goering, dead this week in history, 15th of October, 1946. We'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you enjoyed the podcast, like, seriously, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can also reach me on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. You can also reach me at fascism15 on Twitter. All right. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week.